Today, I'm delighted to be in conversation. In fact, I'm honoured to be in conversation with Abigail Petit, who lives and works in Lewis now and who I've known for some considerable years. We've just been talking about how best to introduce you, Abigail, and you shared with me that you're very proud of being a textile process engineer, which you worked hard for, and I look forward to hearing more about that, but also that in your everyday and how you describe yourself on LinkedIn and how I know you is a maker, mender and mentor and, of course, an author of a wonderful book called The Eye of the Needle. Abigail, welcome. Thank you, Annie. It's really great to be meeting you like this. Well, it's very exciting for me too. And it's exciting in so many ways because, of course, I remember you opening and I'm going to be asking you about Gossipium and rereading your beautiful book the eye of the needle reminded me just what a special person you are and although listeners won't be able to see you i'd like to describe to listeners that you are draped in one of your beautiful shawls um which is absolutely lovely you're surrounded by fabric and I can see your mending, sewing, making table behind you and in the window behind Abigail are a range of beautiful old sewing machines. Abigail, tell me more about how you got started as a maker, mentor and mender. I started as a maker. I do think that's the first and I was very young. My mum dressmate at home. I jumped onto my mother's sewing machine when I was about seven and I started making toys. Yeah, by then we were heading into the 70s and there was a lot about. There were the cloth kits, there was the block printing. My mum was making smocks. I can't remember where she ended and I started really on the making, but there was a lot of it at home. There's a real sense of you being side by side in that journey with your mum. Was your mother's sewing machine a treadle machine? Was it a hand-operated machine? I remember it so clearly. It was a 1950s singer and it was in that coffee colour with a dark brown edge. It was of its era. She also involved my dad. He had to do the cutting out. And he was also a good sewer as well because his mother had been a milliner, I think. So it was very much around at home. And I picked it up and I ran with it. It sounds lovely. So you you were in a household where making was happening all around you and fabric material was being made into things. And you started, as you describe in your lovely book, making toys i did i made toys um i don't know if someone gave me the patterns but they were a front and a back and i sewed them round and i put the faces on and i do describe in my book how the putting of the face became more than just the embroidery it was like creating kind of some kind of life in a weird way and i always made them for people the thing about my i didn't just ever make anything really for me my mother used to always yell at me to save the first of every one I made because they always went and I learned very early on as a very raw child what it was to have to make something that someone else wanted that's a very strange thing and it's informed all my what became a need to do business because I had to develop that thing that I had experienced in really early childhood when I was about 12 I moved into making hessian dolls my dad used to take me to the library on a Saturday morning I was really very geeky 
and I went through Nottingham Library, all the craft books. I went through the books on Victorian costume and I made dolls in a Victorian dress. And then I found this 70s book, which I've seen recently on Hessian dolls. They were so 70s. They were made out of old jute that you can hardly see anymore. And, and wire, inside you had to have cloth colored wire. And as my dad was renovating a Victorian house and ripping out the wires, they were the perfect thing. But what, um, what was interesting about this was that I made these Hessian groups to match the people who commissioned them. And this is when I was really very young. So they looked like the groups were structured to match the families who were ordering. I mean, they were only friends and family, really. But it felt like quite a living gift, not only the making and the learning how to do it, but then the fact that people wanted it from me. Something that it sounds like you were really, really called to do and wanted to do more of. The word calling is a strange one, but yes. In your book, you talk about yourself as a happy child. You write about the happy child, but you also mention a time of becoming unhappy, which led to a time of searching when you were feeling sad. Yes, my childhood kind of came to a very abrupt end. We did live in a, quite a creative bubble. I was 16. We were living in Wimbledon. I was starting to realise I had to link into the real world. And I think that hit my parents all at the same time as well. And it was like, oh, and what do we do? And before we knew it, they were going in different directions. And it was rather devastating because they had loved one another a lot. And we didn't know what to do, really. And everyone scattered. And I spent a long time after that trying to find that happy place in me when I didn't really find it anywhere in the outside world. <laughs> so I was a bit lost, really, at that point. The other thing that happened was, as a teenager in the late 80s, sewing was really not cool. So all the things I had done, I couldn't really put those in a social context really very well. So it's fine. I became a waitress at Peter Express and did my A-levels and kind of put myself together. But it was like this whole part of me had no place shall we just say, it had no place in that period of my life, really. I had to quickly see what else there was to me. When did you return to find yourself? And it sounds like you found yourself within yourself rather than in the outside world, although what you went on to do connected you very much with the outside world through the, through the making, through the mending, through all that you went on to do? Everyone had always said, you're going to be a fashion designer because they'd seen what I was doing. And I'd already decided that I found that was really quite superficial. I remember thinking, but I don't need to study that at university. I had science A-levels. And what I wanted to do was be a doctor in Bangladesh, specifically. I think I'd seen Joan Byers there, one of my mentors. She had been there and had all my childhood. I'd wanted to be a doctor in Bangladesh. And actually, that's what I missed when my parents split up because I missed my lower sixth exams. And although I had really good GCSEs, the predictions from the school were not good enough to get me a place at medical school. And that was actually the cause of my crisis. I couldn't go yes. to be the doctor in Bangladesh that I thought I was going to be because of all the other things at home. I was a scientist by then. I'd done my A-levels and I loved my physics and chemistry. So I went to Leeds to do psychology for a year and I couldn't hack it. I was so fangledy-dangledy. I just, what's all this then? <laughs> but next door, the there's apartment of textile pro industries, this huge, big department Fantastic. of industries. I said, well, I'm jumping in there, changed my course and signed up for textile process engineering. I did the last year of the 200-year-old course. So my first lecture was on breeds of sheep from Yorkshire. 
Then we had the Manchester lot talking about the cotton spinning. Then we had the nylon people spinning the nylon. Then we had the dyeing labs. Oh, back to wool again. But then we had the garment technology and the bit that M&S had put in and all the sewing machines. And for three years, my mind and brain was just saturated with learning, learning. We had a full timetable like the other engineers. But we learned the codes for doing weaving, which is a special writing code. We learned the code for stitching of knittings. We learned the gears on the machines and how the revolutions would change and how the knitting cycle would be and the weaving cycle. And then we learned about, you know, take a hand loom. It takes no time to get going on it. Take a, a shuttle loom and you have to warm it up. You've got the air jet looms, which take so long to warm up, you never can turn them off. They're running 24 hours a day. So what I learned was engineering. I also learned an incredible history of people and, and the world. And it touched everything. And I had so much knowledge. I didn't know what to do with it. But I couldn't do what they wanted me to do with it, which was go and get a job in a factory or at M&S. just couldn't do it. I felt I would be selling myself out in a weird way. And they weren't jobs for girls either. I'm 57 now, so it was early days for women in engineering. Still is. But then we were eight women in my 200 lecture theatre. I would have had to put on a huge suit of armour to go to work in that industry. And I didn't really feel like that. My job prospects were so narrow. Going to be a power buyer for M&S with the big shoulders in Maggie's London said nothing to me. I was looking for my friends and looking for what I knew adventurous years and very searching years in which you then I'm thinking about the connection that you made with your Joan and Bangladesh. There was a post on the wall in my university which was from the Intermediate Technology Development Group and that development group is my link to India because that development group was working with hand weavers in India and guess what Bangladesh. I love interviewed by you because you're remembering I forgot all that so I blagged myself from ITDG in Brugby I black I remember going to the phone box in the rain and I rang this man at ITDG I can still remember it to this minute that in head of textiles I said I'd like to work for you I'm, I'm coming I need to work I'm coming I've I've visited Africa I've got 30 sewing machines I'm up for this and he said well actually I'm just leaving and I'm joining Tradecraft I'm moving from ITDG up to Tradecraft which were the pioneer coffee people in the north. I didn't look where they were. I said, okay, I'm coming with you. And that was it. And he tried to get rid of me, but you've got no experience. I, I wasn't having it. And he said he was going to Tradecraft. And that was it. I didn't notice till later that on the postcode NE25ONE was Newcastle. I didn't see that, didn't care. But it meant leaving Wimbledon and going to live in Newcastle. But what happened was he employed me as a clothing consultant to do the first Federal clothing catalogue in 1985. And six weeks into my working life, I was on a plane to be a fashion designer in Bangladesh. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. So that's how you came to be in Bangladesh, which is a place that you'd always wanted to be. It was crazy. But I was by then flying the flag of the fair trade movement, which kind of just matched where I was myself. And very much on the front foot, I would say, because I see you as something of a pioneer in the whole fair trade and bringing it to a wider audience, making fair trade part of the high street, in particular in clothing. 
Oh, Annie, it's a huge story. The thing is, I did this whole clothing range single-handedly with 30 different embroidering groups and sewing groups. And I was 22. And I, I did the whole thing, overseen by one lovely man, Joe Osman, who has now finally left Tradecraft after 34 years. And he's written a book. I'm a contributor officially on the clothing section from that period where the level of excitement was huge. But um, I couldn't keep it up. I was exhausted at 25 and they were focusing on coffee and chocolate and easier commodities. Clothing was like, what's clothing? What do people want? And tradecraft was basically being sold in church halls around the country. It was hard to get right. And I'm thinking, yeah, this is too hard. I'm going to put it down. And I left and I went back into my industry this time. I said, I better get a proper job now and face this industry that I hadn't wanted to do before. So I looked in the back of my textile institute magazine. From there, I found a job in the industry. The job was fabric development manager in a multinational in Brussels. They were making acetate and triacetate fiber. And acetate and triacetate fiber is made by melting down wood. So they were pulping Virginia wood trees into cellulosics and spinning it out in their factories. And I was in charge of developing fabrics for them. So I found myself suddenly in the middle of Brussels with my company car, heading up fabric development, going to all the fashion trade fairs, showing fabrics, working for a fibre company. In that job, suddenly I was swanning all over Europe. I was visiting mills and factories and fashion shows and trade fairs. And it was incredible contrast. So from having scoured Asia and worked with these wonderful people, I found myself in another part of the textile world. And from the very privileged position of being inside one of the most corporate bits of the textile industry, round the boardroom tables in a powerful position, having sat in the dirt with the embroiderers, I was there with the people who make fashion happen. They were selling into M&S. They locked in. Come on, you take this. Here's my fleece. You make your clothes. They were powerful. And I learned that the power sat in those blocks at the back of the supply chain. And their partners were the retailers right at the front. An important partnership. And I studied that and I thought about that strategically because all these links in this long chain and all these different bits that I'd learned. And it was important for fair trade as well. Okay, so then that very corporate job moved to Frankfurt. And by then I was married to my first husband living in Brussels and I didn't want to go. I haven't done well at staying in corporate lines too long. So three years there was enough. Thank you very much. I feel carried along by your story and the journey that you've been on, as I'm sure listeners will be, and just how much you know, Abigail, both from experience, but also from learning from community and your being part of growing communities and this exploration into cotton which I think you're going to talk more about. One of the things about the fair trade is it's fantastically European and so being in Brussels I was used to that by now so I would pop along to the local Oxfam and I would um, do a bit of product development for them just because I couldn't knock and because they were the handloom weavers that I had met and loved for Tradecraft. The movement for fair trade clothing and anti-sweatshops was starting to rise up. There was a very militant girl in Oxfam, Belgium, who was really on this issue. She was on it, on it, on it. And I was saying, fine. But one day I sat down and proved to her that something like 30% of the value of a T-shirt is in the cotton and that the sewing wasn't as much and that they could put the sewing right, but there wasn't much you could change about the knitting or you couldn't change much about the dyeing. And this is where my textile process engineering, that knowledge underpinned everything I did next because yes. I had all these economics of this whole supply chain and the two extremes that I'd already lived. 
I had it all laid out in my head. Now there are consultants reports and 10 pound programs and 100 point programs about all these things and initiatives going on all over the world. But at that point, I don't think anyone else knew at that moment in time what I knew from all those experiences together. So I convinced Oxfam Belgium that there was something to be done with the cotton farmers. And this process took two years. So while I was working in Brussels and whatever else I was doing, we wrote a plan for how we could do something for the cotton farmers. And it took two years to get the money through the Oxfam charity and to talk with everybody there. And I just love the alternative word of the Oxfam. I was in and out of the commission buildings and took my baby in, in a sling to the meetings. You didn't do that in the 90s. No way. You didn't do that. But I did. After two years, Oxfam were ready. We had a plan. They were going to send me to India to get the cotton and they were going to buy 10,000 t-shirts. So that's what's going to pay for it. So when I went on these journeys with Tradecraft, I ended up with a handful of friends. One of them was the guy I did the weave and tea towels with. And another one was the embroidery family who have yeah. gone far deeper into my soul and are behind the whole next chapter. I started with people I revere. I started with people who, who of all the people I'd met in India were the strongest both in business, they were the most developed in business and with their ethics. And this family were known to Traycraft through the ITTG Schumacher School. So they had started in the philosophy of smallest beautiful, which leads right back to Gandhian philosophy and economics. And they sell farming products and bee foods and pesticide products and natural chemicals. And they do a whole bunch of businesses and social projects and research and family things and all based in a very um, post-independence Gandhian spirit from India and I love them the most they consumed me I came with all this knowledge and I came as myself with not much else and they loved me they valued me they understood me they took me in they fed me they housed me and at every level trusted me a very powerful adoption process and gave me a safe place in a weird way I think going back to this huge vulnerability at 16 is what is my place I've described my attempts to go to the conventional world and then in my engineering degree didn't fit there the tradecraft was great but it was mainly on coffee at that time and I couldn't quite do everything there and with my Shroff family I felt a tremendous sense of homecoming sounds like the three things the I hand soul which is the connection that I read when I read your book the eye of the needle that through that family through that belonging Mm. through finding your place with them them giving you the space to be you Mm. you were able to make that connection between all three the eye the hand the soul yeah I think handwork is is healing I think it's a gift and a skill that is healthy to learn. It wires our brain differently. It's meditative, it's peaceful, it's beautiful, it's unique, it's yours. It's You put your own identity, even if three people do the same embroidery. I see that in my workshops that I make them all make a mouse, but they are all so different by the end. And I encourage that. And I think those are the things that became wired into who I am. And now I, there's no need to jump around the world and try and change it. I, I'm here mentoring mm-hmm. at whatever level of skill. It sounds like you had done what you needed to do. You'd awakened the world in a way. And that's what it sounds like, Abigail, and that what you haven't mentioned running alongside this is as well as 
pioneering in the way that you were and the way you've described. But I also know you to be a mother, family is very important to you, and community, which you have touched upon, is very important to you. And uh, so all of that was happening all at the same time as all of this pioneering. I made a clear choice. You're absolutely right. Those other things I've done were all quite strategically planned in a weird way. I made a clear choice to put my family first. I was not going to run a big company. Yeah. I did not want those pressures. I had two more babies by then and I did not want to do it. And the business itself is now joined with a bigger group, focused on the core products we started with, made in UK, still leading the way. And the, the group that it's part of at Yoga Matters, a lot of the staff also came from the original Tradecraft route. So it's in very good hands. And I'm really proud of that. I know I look at the Yoga Matters catalogue and I'm always delighted when I see, as you say, the original designs uh, that I saw way back when still being the most popular designs and lines, the most comfortable and the most beautiful. Absolutely. When you design a piece of clothing that lasts five years, you can't join the rest of the fashion industry because... What, what are you selling this month and next month and the other month and all the people who want to change? You just can't join it. So we went our own way and we're very happy now with where, where it is. And it, it's all intact to regrow again as the world catches up, you know. You mentioned there was another book. Was that the book that you'd reached for with a great title? I can't remember the title. Oh, The High Horse Riderless. No, that was just, I was just trying to encapsulate how I felt for those very few yes. days when I was literally riding that wave. And that's how I felt. Yes. Oh, the I other book I read. Was book. Oh, no, that was, that was the Gandhi one, the, about Gandhi and um, my experiment with truth. And um, yes. by, by, by Gandhi and his whole economic structure of not putting money as the important thing, but putting labor as the key capital. We have a capital yeah. of cash at the moment, but actually our other capital is handwork, labor, hand labor, which does not have to be negative. The people who like to put the cash first and buy the machines with their cash, they like to say that handwork is down. But for me, handwork is up. And mm -hmm. people look down on my mending, but I consider it the highest thing I could be doing at this moment. It has more potency than the high horse rideless years. The journey of growing, of then making, of mending, of memory uh, as well. And somewhere you do describe yourself as a doctor. I'll tell you a little story about the doctor on the website. In my current practice, I make and mend clothes. I'm now in my house, which is a front place and a shop window. But um, last summer, I was renting out the two front rooms, once to a furniture restorer and the other one to a vintage fashion clothes shop. So we were all three prolonging the life of objects down there. And we had the happiest three years of community you would ever have seen. And, and literally everyone stumbled in, either with a purpose or by accident. It was a charming chapter in my life. Sometime last summer, in stumbled an 18, 19-year-old lad from Lewis or Grammar here who'd been off in France, didn't know what he was doing with his life, but he wanted to do fashion. He'd been to some course in France about marketing and he'd realised that you couldn't do marketing unless you knew what you were marketing and he wanted to make clothes and he wanted to do fashion. He wanted a business career in fashion. And I said, well, okay. And then he wants to go to fashion school. We didn't have the right things or the acts. I said, I'd go and do one of those courses in Brighton for a year and a foundation. And he said, no, I want to stay learning from you. I want to stay learning. And I got him sewing and turning up trousers and I said, look, I can't pay you. And he came as an intern every day for three months and couldn't stop this guy. And then I said, well, you know what? 
let's see if I can take you as an apprentice to learn to sew. But they couldn't offer the apprenticeships here and I had to go to London to the East End to find a school to link us to. But you couldn't really just have an apprentice in alterations because the apprenticeships are in tailoring and this is a tailoring school. They train people for Savile Row. So there are many people wanting sewing apprentices outside Savile Row. There are a few in the opera and the theatre. But somehow, because I'd been sort of knocking on this door for two or three years, they knew me. We decided to do the apprenticeship. He goes up to his first lessons and he came back with a sheet of the language of tailoring. And a tailoring alteration specialist is called a doctor. He looked at his sheet and we said, what shall we call ourselves? He said, well, that's what you're called. And that is a word that was probably called that long before Western medicine usurped the word. So um, he put it on the website and I said, thank you very much. And I finally felt a tremendous sense of peace that I am in my practice. Absolutely. And that you do provide healing through the work that you do, not only in terms of mending alterations and making, but also the kind of mending that you found through your own journey. Indeed. There are many levels on which I'm finding the practice of mending clothes is like so important. As I dissect each garment, I feel their history. I, I can see what kind of factory they were made in. I see garments that are 30 years old. I see garments that are just bought off ASOS and are the wrong size and always were. I see the wild selection and the different brands. You can see their DNA. I can I can tell you how different it is mending a monsoon garment from an M&S garment. M&S garments are so distinctive in the features of the way they've been sewn. But it's a very meditative thing with every piece and every person. There is a hugely healing journey, yeah. But I feel like by choosing to do this job, I'm healing something bigger, almost. It very much, it feels like you're, you're almost back where you started in your childhood with your family around you, only now you're the mother at the sewing machine there alongside you, learning from you. I'm a mother to my four girls very much, and um, I'm a sewing mother to many. I teach about 60 children a week to sew at the moment. I'm there for people who need it and who come to have this level of maturity to be able to stand still now. I did a lot. <laughs> Absolutely. And as you said at the beginning, there's perhaps been some catching up during this really challenging global time uh, and ongoing crisis of us all being in lockdown or currently coming out of it in parts of the world where we have been back in our homes. People have stayed in their houses. They've worn the same wardrobes. They've learned to accessorise. My kids have been coming up, cutting their things. They've been selling them on Depop to each other, recycling, changing. I think there are going to be a lot more designer makers, people who make their own fashion in their own town. I see them on Instagram. I follow a lot of young kids who are out there and they're just making stuff. They're just making it and selling it. And I think there's going to be a big change now lovely to have spent this last hour or so Abigail with you being still with you and yet I feel I've traveled far and wide with you as well you mentioned not only uh, being a mother to your four girls and your mentoring your writing and that you have a book that you've contributed to a whole section on it would be great for people listening who one want to hear more about you but who might all also, I'm sure, 
want to read your contribution to the book and the book itself? My book is available on my website or Amazon now from me uh, only at the moment. Um, that the is the needle. needle. Yeah. Yeah. which is a beautiful book with beautiful yeah. illustrations. Oh, Thank you. Yeah, local, a local That's Lewis girl has done this. And then the new book that Joe Osman has written is called Tradecraft, Inspiring a Fair Trade Revolution. And that's by Lion Hudson, published by Lion Hudson. It'll be available in August. But people can follow my Instagram or tune in casually. Find me if they want to. They will find you. And to find you on Instagram, that's via Abigail's Drapery. Abigail's Drapery, yeah. Lovely. Thank you so much, Abigail. I've absolutely loved being in conversation with you and uh, look forward to coming by appointment to Abigail's Drapery on the High Street in Lewis. Thank you.